0: One really important message is something you just said there, which is uh, you be you and I'll be me. Yeah. You know, what a, what a great thing that, you, that that is about your resilience. That's the, having the resilience to say, I'm going to lead my life the way I want to lead it with choice. And just because the herd happens to be heading in a partic- particular direction does not mean that I need to be a part of that herd. And oftentimes that's the very last thing that you need. The very last thing you need is to be going around with a, um, a way of thinking, a genre that's heading off in a direction. You go, that's not for me. Yeah. Uh, and if, if you get trapped into that, that's when your resilience becomes eroded. So that ability to just step back and say, hey, hang on, uh, this is the lifestyle I want. This is the quality of life that I want. These are the relationships, the work, the fun. These are all the things that I want to I pack into my life. Uh, And and you've got to manage some downside risk in all of that, of course. I'm sure Mm -hmm. you did some things to manage your downside risk.
1: So welcome, everybody, to another Meet the Author. We've got a great conversation in store for you today and a wonderful guest. Gary, who do we have with us today?
2: Well, Tamara, I'm really, really pleased that we have Ian Snake with us today. Um, Ian is co-author, along with Mike Weeks, of I Find a Really Interesting, um, well-illustrated book it's called resilience by design how to survive and thrive in a complex and turbulent world it is um i personally think it's so awesome i bought copies for all my adult kids so they can share with my grandkids um, it's that it's that critical i think resilience so welcome me in and, and by the way uh, for those that know ian it's what time is it right now for you
0: it's one o'clock in the morning here in tasmania one
2: o'clock in the morning. so thank you for joining us Way down under, appreciate that. And um, thank you for those who will be able to make it now and who will be joining us later. So let's dive right into it and ask that always first question. So what made you decide to write this book? Is there a need that you're trying to fulfill?
0: Yeah, and you know, if if I'm flippant with your answer, uh, let's look at the framing of the question where you said, what made you decide to write this book? And, And the short answer is nothing made me. Uh, this, it's cause and effect in that language that is, it permeates through our society, doesn't it? You know, what made ah. you do this? And, and the short answer is, well, nothing made me do it. Um, but the point is that a lot of people do feel like they are made to do things. They feel like the external world or external conversations with people uh, make them respond in certain ways, particularly things like stress. We always, you know, you'll hear in every organization, oh, it's making me stressed, or he made me do this, or she made me do that. Or they, you know, created this system, and and I'm stressed because of it. Uh, And it's all nonsense. It's all complete nonsense. I think think when you see, I guess, people that I care about struggling with stress, with decision-making, with lives that they're in that they're not happy with, uh, that was the motivation for me, uh, I could see that, and my response was, "Well, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to tra- create a company. Uh, I'm going to write a book." Uh, and you know, the people I'm talking about, are, are, you know, a lot of our clients are frontline professionals. Uh, they're in healthcare, they're police, they're correctional uh, in correctional services. They're in those sorts of jobs where people say, "Oh, they're stressful jobs." Well, hang on a minute. They're not stressful jobs. Some people respond with stress. Other people are uh, really love their work and they don't find it stressful uh so i'm really curious about that distinction between those that do and those that don't and how do we capture that that distinction that ability to not be stressed uh, and to do resilience uh, and then how can we transfer that to everyday people frontline professionals uh we're, you know, we've, we're from a company called Frontline Mind, uh, but also everyday folks who, who might struggle with, with difficult situations uh, and they uh, would like to learn how to, uh, how to experience the world differently, how to make better decisions, how to get out of lives that they find themselves in that are really not working for them.
2: Yeah, so the word resilience has, has bounced around and I see there's different types of definitions. What, what definition are, are you using? I, uh, we talk about the
0: ability to prepare, uh, so it's, it, can be, it can be what you can do before, ahead of time. It's about how you respond and how you adapt. Uh, and this can be anything from incremental changes to challenging or difficult situations or, or right the way through to a catastrophe or, or a crisis or a major upheaval in your life. So it's very much about adaptation uh, with, a, with a, some sort of continuous sense of identity uh, that's what we mean by resilience. Uh, having having something that perhaps um, uh, causes you to experience, or ha- you know, having a situation that's so catastrophic that you no longer have a sense of identity—that's no longer resilience. There's something else going on there. Uh, that could be a company, for example. You know, take the word, take resilience, and apply it to a company. If you've got some sort of connectivity of ideas and people then that's resilience. If your whole company goes bust and you lose everything, that's no longer resilient. Uh, then you, you know, you might need to start again just to use that as a metaphor.
2: Yeah. Right. So who do you see as the audience for your book?
0: Uh, I, I think it can be anybody. I, I think ultimately, mm-hmm. I, I guess it's people that buy books. I, I mean, I use that. I'm, I'm being kind of frivolous there. Right. But um, it is written as a book. Uh, it's written as a coffee table book that you can luxuriate in. So it's people that will go, I actually really like that old school physical, I've got a book in my hand, right? right? It's, it's somebody who's more interested in, in a book than they are a, uh, a meme on Facebook that says, hey, this is how you do resilience in, you know, 45 characters and a cartoon. Uh, I wanted to provide something that was deep. Uh, that was connected to the literature. That was really well researched, and there was just a luxurious thing that you could open up uh, at any time. You could you could dip in for for five minutes and just read a story. You could skim it back and forth. Uh, you're attracted by the, the the graphic design and the illustrations. Uh, so so yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where I was going. That's
2: good. <clears throat> well, I'll I'll say um, my my kids are saying this is an awesome book. And uh, we've got both e- e-book copy as well as as um, as well as the paper copy as well. So, you're, But you're right. Um, you're with my wife. She likes to have that smell of the book in her hands. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm hoping it provides really practical uh, tips and tricks or just stimulates people's thinking so that they make decisions differently. Mm-hmm. And, and, and certainly I, I know you guys have got a particular lens around safety uh, this the, the thinking behind this book and what we teach in really practical skills uh, is about risk. Every decision you make in your life is about managing risk and taking chances and, and making that work for you. And this book is about how do you do that? Uh, how, do you engage, how do you engage with risky situations uh, and, and manage that? Uh, it's We were talking earlier in the, in, the, in the preamble about the unfortunate role of the regulator. All right. And how poor regulation is, is at the moment, uh, particularly in North America, and it's true the world over, uh, where there's almost very, what I would call defensive decision making. Right? We're resorting to, to checklists, we've got lots of bureaucracy, uh, we've got lots of attempts to control, what, rather than embracing emergent risk uh, in, in very proactive ways, uh, I, I think if I summarise it summarise the situation, and it actually makes things less safe, uh, which is fascinating. You know, they're trying really, really hard, and the harder they try, the more they try to control, the less well-able they are to manage safety, uh, and I think, I think there's a paradox there, and this book is about how you kick out of that uh, at a personal level. Uh, later work that we're doing is about more systems uh, and, and how you do that organisationally, but ultimately, it comes down to you. You know, you can't blame your company. For not, for not looking after your safety because you've got to look after your safety. And if you don't like what's going on there, you can either speak up or get out. But sitting there and getting, getting wiped out is not a good option. So if, if we're blunt. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I'd like your statement in the book where you say the challenge is to develop context-appropriate states with an intensity that matches the needs of the moment. So we talk about being emergent. Well, there you go, right there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh,
2: you
0: know, the, there, are common, there are common states that, re, that don't work well for people uh, because they get applied out of context. So let's, let's take uh, stress as an example. If you have a stress response to something in the external world and you listen to that response and you, so you go, hang on a minute, I've got something happening here. What's it telling me? What's the benefit of this? It can serve you really well. It might be the thing that's the, that's, the oh, hang on. I've got to stop right now. I've got to reassess my situation. I want to do something with this signal that I've got this. I've got a stress, you know, I'm stressed right now. But we don't do that. A lot of people don't do that. They, they keep going on and they just keep doing stress. They practice it or they practice anxiety or they practice anger. And all of these things, these emotional labels, these emotions that people talk about, in the right context that can serve you really well if you've got a bit of it, uh, we overdo it and then it amplifies because we're not listening uh, and you get really, really stressed and really, really angry or really, really anxious or whatever state you, want, you you choose to have. So we talk more about designing, uh, pre-positioning, uh, what kind of state is gonna meet the context, uh, how much of it do you need and how do you recognize when the context has changed? How do you, and then how do you switch? How do you switch between being in a really high-risk situation uh, where you might need to be very, very vigilant, even hypervigilant, to then switch and go home and go, actually, I don't need any of that right now.
2: hmm mm-hmm. Well, you've got a pretty interesting way that you arranged the book. Can you tell us more how you organized the book and the approach that you used?
0: Yeah, the... The book, the origins of the book, really came about from what, what we call modeling. Uh, uh, and what I mean by modeling is looking at the unconscious uh, ways that uh, um, amazing people around the world do resilience. So going right back, we started uh, modeling people in frontline agencies, uh, police, tactical uh, people in extreme risk environments like, like the mountains, like mountain guides uh, of America, or Alaska, uh, New Zealand. And from there, we identified common patterns that, that, that people, people use. So let's say we, we train a group of people. It could be a team, could be 15 people. And we ask certain questions. And usually within the space of an hour or two, we'll uncover in the room about 80% of the patterns that we cover in this book. So people already have some latent uh, use of the patterns in here. They, they'll talk about, oh, well, I took a step back. And then you unpack what they're doing, and they're doing third position, which is covered in chapter five, right? Uh, or somebody said, oh, I had a gut feeling about this, and I listened to that, and I knew that I shouldn't keep going. And you go, okay, well, there's chapter seven. so uh, So the structure then came about from... Uh, hundreds of interviews with people who do resilience really well. And then we structured it in a reasonably logical way. There's a bit more theory at the front end and a bit more practical at the back end. Uh, so we sort of front loaded some of the, the neuroscience, some of what we know uh, about the way that humans make sense of the world. And then uh, built, a, built a book that would go, you can go front to back. You can actually go back to front if you like. You can dip in on a particular topic. Um, but the, the really, the really hard part of writing the book was every spread, as you open, open the book is self contained. So you can just read two pages, and they should make coherent sense. Uh, there's a couple that are that are linked where there's actually two spreads required for it to fully, fully join, but no more than that. So you can dip in in five minutes and go, oh, I'm just going to be curious for a moment. And then you go, okay, now I've got to go and look after my kids or go to work or you know get back into this meeting or whatever else you want to do so it's designed to be to dip in dip out front to back back to front uh and yeah i love that idea of like i said luxuriating on the coffee table because i'm old school
2: yeah well i I think just to share with people and maybe um get you to salivate, you've got a great graphic at the end talking about the um a box of chocolates. You've <laughs> got 12 chapters and there's 12 different types of chocolates in there. So just, just as an aside, um, I did send the, your, your book to my to my daughter as a Mother's Day present. So I gave her a box of chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> I love that metaphor. I love that. Uh, beautiful Perfect. connection. It was good. Um, Tavaro, I see you got your hand up. Would you like to uh, add some comments?
1: Yeah, well, actually, uh, more of a question. Um, So, you know, I I personally do believe that being resilient is a personal choice. You know, when things come at you, you know, stepping back and looking at what really are my options and then choosing what is best for where I want to go. And we kind of discussed that in our pre-conversation in the green room. And it kind of struck me that, you know, um, you were talking about like the 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 world kind of gives us this subscribed view of how we should be living our life, and a lot of people tend to be sheep and continue down that road. And then you've got a black sheep who says, "No, you know, I'm going to quit my job and go live in Honduras for four or five years, right?" Um, and so I, I kind of wanted to dig in a little bit deeper about the narratives that are are subscribed to us and and how is your recommendation about how to go about rewriting that narrative? Because I understand that I might've done it unconsciously, Mm
3: -hmm. but
1: I think there needs to be a conversation about how do we do that consciously?
0: Yeah. Wow. That's actually, that's actually a very deep question um, because you're linking it to the conscious and unconscious. And, And one of the things that's, it permeates right the way throughout the book and we do make it explicit. I suspect we don't make it explicit enough. And that is this book is about the end. This is not about, Oh, is it conscious or unconscious? This is about how do we harmonize the conscious and the unconscious? How do we use both of those in our decision-making? Uh, how do we use both of those in, in identifying what the sheep are doing and am I, going around, am I just going along with the sheep because there's a pattern there? Am I entrained in what's going on in the thinking around me? Or in fact, have I stepped out of it? Am I able to see the patterns? And, and, and am I able to evaluate, is this working for me? Uh, and I think my personal view is you can do both with conscious and unconscious. We can preposition uh, decision-making by consciously practicing so that unconsciously we have those pat- new emergent patterns. Uh, unconsciously, we can train ourselves to kick out and just do random things and, and, and shake it up. Uh, so I, I, think, I think there's actually lots to your question. Uh, my, my personal view is uh, take stock, take stock of your life periodically. And this could be every six months this could be quite regular. Not, I'm not saying, you know, go for 20 years and then stop and then say, hang on a minute. It has my life. I'm saying on a much more regular basis, let's just step back and say, how am I going with my relationships right now? Have I just been buried in work for six months and I've forgotten that I'm married and I've got two kids. Do they even know who I am? You know, if I'm coming in after a 60 hour week, does the dog recognize me or is it, is it asleep? And it's like, Oh yeah, that guy's here, whatever. You know, Regularly take stock, stock of your life, look at your lifestyle, um, and, and shake it up, do something different. Mike, my co-author, would be one of the most random people you could ever meet. He's the least sheep-like human uh, I've ever encountered. Uh, he, he'll do any crazy thing if, you, if it's more interesting or, or there's some opportunity in it. So, uh, yeah, em- embrace, embrace a bit of randomness, I think.
1: Yeah. Does anybody else have a question because I do have a follow up, but I want to give the room a chance to get in there. Do you, Peter, go ahead.
3: Oh, and unmute yourself, Peter. Yeah. yeah. how's that? You're better now. Oh, if, good. Thanks. I, I was just
4: curious uh, what your comment of at the, at the first or about the uh, stress and how you manage it when you're at work. uh, I'm sure a lot of people get their stress from their bosses, right? And uh, uh, so you may not have that stress yourself, you know, you may be able to manage that on your own. But uh, I think uh, if we kind of really look at it, uh, you get a lot of that stress or stress pointed towards you, I guess, by other people. So I guess there's two ways of looking at how to manage that, right? Whether you manage the stress yourself, but you need to manage that stress, uh, I guess on the the business side of it too, and work, uh, you know, so I guess there's two levels of stress. Would that make sense?
0: Let me play with the words there a little bit.
4: Uh,
0: (laughs) you, You started with, you get your stress from your boss. All right. This book is about, you don't get your stress from your boss. Let me challenge that your boss might be stressed, and you've got the choice whether you take that on or not. And it's that, it's that distinction, the gap between what your boss is doing, what your workplace is doing, and what your response is to that. Now, I, I, I was really picky with your language, but this is the dominant language pattern in the world. This is not just a, a random pattern that I've picked up. You go anywhere and people talk about how my boss is making me stressed or my work is making me stressed. Or well, it's not. You've got choice in there. Now, there's a really important point. Let's say that your boss is really stressy, right? They're, they're, they're not coping with their work, whatever it might be. And, they're, and I think you use the word like they're projecting that at you. Uh, and then the, I think there's a few things you can do. You can step to the side. You can do a whole range of things so that that stress doesn't come to you and you don't pick it up, you can observe it. You could even help your boss. You might be able to help them by saying, hey, here's what I'm observing. Here's the pattern I'm seeing. What can we do to work on this together so that you're not doing that? But let's say for example, you've got the kind of boss that ain't interested in listening to that. They're stressed out of their brain. They're creating an environment that's not fun to be around. It's gonna take you energy to be able to operate differently. It takes us energy sometimes to not copy the patterns around us. You've got to have a filter in place, okay? So you need to be aware of our environment, and it might be that ultimately you choose not to be in that system because it's so energetic to keep that stuff out. And we talk about a toxic environment, and sometimes that's actually quite a good metaphor. It's like I can survive in a toxic environment if I've got my suit on, but do I want to wear a suit every day, day in, day out? Well, want to work in a really toxic environment, and sometimes we might choose to. Uh, But if I'm going to work in a toxic environment, I'm going to have all the PPE in the world that I need. I'm going to be really well paid for it, and it's going to be for a short period of time. Uh, I'll go into a nuclear reactor if I've got the right kit, uh, and I'm not there very long, and they pay me a very large amount of money, right? But I'm I'm not going to stay there very long at all. Uh, So I hope that's a useful metaphor. Uh,
3: Yeah,
0: Michael. Yeah.
4: Hey, Ian, thanks for staying up late for us on this side of the, the, the Oh, no,
0: I got up. I've been to bed. I've been... I'm, oh, jeez. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, you're, it's a super
4: early start. <laughs> um, well, maybe there's a little lead on to the, the question that was just posed, because another way of looking at it... Well, I want to try get some... Pull a couple stories from your Arctic expeditions. It's a, it's a part of your life. I'm not sure if some of the attendees are, are fully aware um, so the question is, and then I just want to make an association to the last question, is um, from all of your Arctic expeditions, you know, what one or two stories are maybe a good exemplar of resilience in, in a certain environment? And maybe what are there was there an example or situation where you thought, oh, geez, you know, now what you know, how you distilled all this thinking in your book um, that, that would have been helpful for the team or you to have? And, and I just want to relate to the, the question a little bit because um, and I like how you frame things at the start. It's kind of like if, if I'm going out to, you know, pike in the mountains, right. Or taking the boat out onto a remote lake. If the weather turns on me suddenly, you know, I need to deal with that. I'm caught in that situation. It's external to me. So I have to respond. So that's kind of like the boss that is, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden, you know, uh, pulling the schedule and amping up, uh, the demands in that moment, it's kind of like this storm that's hit I'm in it. How do I deal with it? So it's not, you know, dumped on me.
0: Yeah. It's a really interesting question. I I've had lots of experiences in, in polar research. I've, I've led many expeditions. I, I, in my early days, I spent a lot of time helping people in, uh, in, in the, in the challenges of, of remote work. Uh, very long expeditions, very, you know, they're away from family for three months, six months, 12 months, maybe even 18 months uh, in a remote, in a remote camp. And how do you, how do you be resilient in, in those situations? Uh, I can think of, I can think of two stories that, that are, that are interesting. Um, we had a, we had a guy working in the Australian Antarctic program uh, many years ago, uh, his name's Rupert Summerson. He's uh, uh, shorter than me, really slightly built, uh, very gentle, very quiet guy. And you, uh, he was involved in, 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 in mapping, right? That was his, that was he his, was employed to do sort of. Uh, He's in a, a, a data center, and uh, and people didn't realize that Rupert was the about the toughest, most resilient human being uh, I've met. He's ex-British uh, special forces, uh, and he did a lot of expeditions on some with some of the really big names, man-hauling across polar regions, and he's been written up in books where the the, the iconic leaders uh, are fighting, they're squabbling, they're struggling, and, and he's he's the um, he's the peacemaker. He's just unflappable. Uh, this really quiet guy that nobody would assume uh, was in any way tough or resilient uh, is is just. Uh, just incredible you know inspirational so so there's one story that sometimes you see it you know this this resilience thing uh can can be hidden in plain sight by by the least assuming people uh, and then i have another story that sort of popped to mind as you asked that question um and and i guess it's a bit of a personal reflection uh, i i was on the the dive team in antarctica uh, and, and as you can imagine, diving under ice in Antarctica is, is an incredible experience. It is beautiful, uh, it's remote, uh, and it's dangerous. It is a dangerous thing to do. Uh, we have systems in place. We have, uh, we have tethers. We have surface supply uh, of, of air. And I had a, a situation where uh, I was a long, long way out. Uh, so I was about 100 meters uh, from the dive hole. Uh, and we've got a topside crew there uh, who are feeding out the hose, who are in communications. Uh, and, and I'm 100 meters under ice uh, from, from safety. Uh, so I, if something goes wrong, you can't just come up. And, uh, and our comms weren't great. Uh, they were a little bit shaky on that day. Uh, and I was out here and, and my air ran out. Uh, and it was, a. I had a buddy with me, he was, he was reasonably close, but when you're under ice, it's not like, it's not like you're scuba diving in a warm environment where you can, you can share air. Uh, it's much, much more difficult to do. It's minus 1.8. You're in freezing water. If you rip your mask off, your eyes are you're starting to freeze. Uh, the environment does not lend itself to, to you running out of air. Um, and, and there I was, I ran out of air. Uh, and unfortunately the guy was reasonably close and he could see me. And I, I, gave the, I'm out of air signal, uh, and we have what's called a bailout bottle. And this is actually quite a small bottle. It's only, you know, it's about that big and there's only a few liters of air in there. Uh, and at hundred meters, when you've got all that gear on and you're trying to navigate your way back under this sort of iceberg like, uh, terrain, uh, it, it's quite challenging. And so I started swimming back. And I, I swam really slowly. Uh, and all the way, my narrative was, okay, you just need to relax here. This is, this is about relaxation. You're, you need to be so relaxed that your breathing is slow, that you're having just just the amount of air that you need to just keep going. So I'm starting back um, really slowly going along with this very, very limited amount of air. And then I remember thinking, okay, what happens if you run out of your emergency air? And I remember saying to myself, it's really important that you just pass out. Don't take the mask off. I don't want seawater in my lungs. I don't want to be inhaling any of that stuff, right? So I said to myself, you just need to pass out and trust your topside crew. They'll eventually haul my body out, right? I'll be unconscious, but I'll still have this mask on. I might be unconscious, but no matter what happens, there's not going to be any panicking. They just need to haul my ass out of there and then they can revive me, right? But they're not going to be able to revive me if I'm gulping air in uh, and I've got seawater you know, in my lungs. So I, I share that story of one of resilience because there's two things there. The situation required deep relaxation. It required a lot of preparation. And it required trust in my external support network. It needed deep trust to the point where I was prepared to go unconscious and let them sort me out. And I needed to just stay relaxed and keep moving in the right direction. If I'd panicked at hundred meters out, I wouldn't be talking to you today.
4: Wow. Incredible. Thanks for that.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, we let me just take you back to the book. After, after that, let me refocus yourself myself. <laughs> one, one, of the, one of the chocolates you've got is chapter two, and I think maybe we've touched upon it already, and you entitled this sense-making and the importance of making sense of situations. situation. Can you just dive a bit deeper into that? What, what do we need to understand about sense-making? I think
0: the essence of sense-making is, is acknowledging that we're not, we're, not like, um, we're not like a camera that's able to just record uh, what we're programmed to see, if that makes sense. We, are, uh, we have evolved to detect patterns. Uh, so we don't notice a lot of what goes on around us, but instead we, are, we have evolved to detect patterns that pose a threat to us. That's part of our evolutionary history. So we don't see a lot of things in the world. Now, the upsides of pattern detection are that we, we're safe, we see patterns as they emerge in complex situations. Mm. And I use that word very very deliberately. Um, the downside is that we can miss stuff around us as we're responding to to sense of threat, for example, uh, or, or things that, that might be more obvious. So, so sense-making then is about, well, OK, if I acknowledge that we're, we're, we're evolved to detect patterns, how can I use that to my advantage? How can I detect patterns sooner? How can I be aware of the patterns that are important to me? Or how do I detect patterns that might be novel, that I've not seen before, that have not yet fully emerged, that I can use or exploit? Uh, So that's the value of sense making and and some of the underpinnings of it. I think it's super important. I think it's actually uh, being, being situationally aware. And we use that word, you know, situational awareness. It's about your ability to detect patterns. Uh, and understand where they might be going and acknowledge that they're patterns. They're not a fixed cause and effect uh, process in the world. They can change. You might have all the confidence you like in a particular particular pattern. It might be very stable, but if it involves humans or animals, for example, it's probably still a pattern. Uh, And you might need to be a little cautious about, um, about how far you might take that. Uh, you know, I, I often use an example of uh, Montecor, the tiger from the, the Roy, uh, you know, the, the, the Las Vegas stage. You know, they had this tiger been, been on stage for seven years and everyone thought they could, that, you know, its, its patterns of behavior were predictable. And it was for seven years until it bit Roy on the head one day, uh, you know, and that wasn't a great outcome for him. You know, you, you've got to be alert to patterns and always keep a bit of a, a weather eye on what's going on over there. How's that pattern emerging? Let's stay alert. This is still a dangerous animal, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, it really ties in well with your chapter seven, all about signals, right? Early detection. Um, can you tell us about how maybe we use signal or maybe we missed early signals?
0: I think... I think paying attention to signals is 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 quite possibly the most valuable thing you could learn. Uh, this can be uh, in the safety space. This is your uh, this is your sensations that alert you to risk. Mm-hmm. It could be a lot of people say, "Oh, I had a I had a feeling in my gut." Uh, and, you know, we've we've conducted this this uh, interview with hundreds and hundreds of people who operate in really high risk environments, and often people say, "Oh, it's my gut." or it's my, uh, you know, I've got a feeling in the back of my neck, or I've got a tension across my chest, or it's my breathing. I can feel it here. And they'll often use words like heavy to signal that something's not right, that the answers actually know. Shall I progress uh, in my next course of action? And there'll be an involuntary movement backwards. Guess what? There's a signal. Unconsciously, quite often we can tell where, where somebody's going to go before they know that they're going to go there. So we're often signaling to others and to ourselves. Uh, and, and I expand on this with, with the notion of stress or anxiety. Though They are signals. Pain is usually a signal. It's usually a signal to, to get your attention to say, hey, stop right now. I'm worried about what's going to happen to this limb. Pain is not... A cause and effect because you've done some sort of damage to an area uh, and there's a, a hardwired pathway, right? There is a brain that processes the pain signal and makes sense of it for you. And it's actually an alert, it's a danger signal. It's telling you danger, danger, danger. It's not saying, oh, you've just done this, you know, carry on. Uh, it's actually alerting you. So all of these are signals. Uh, and, and, and learning to to be able to recognize what's going on and respond appropriately uh, is key i think
2: yeah all right okay. any comments questions from anybody can you oh. um i see you've been very active in the chat now want to share anything
3: i don't know if i have anything to add i just i i love this kind of thing i mean it, there was one um webinar that i was on a little while ago where um it was said that we're all actually just meerkats i mean watch when some watch when the fire alarm is pulled we're not we're not self-directed we will look around to see what everybody else is doing before we do anything because we depend on other people to guide us in our choices um During, uh, so this was before I knew that Omicron was a thing. Um, We went to an in-person concert where, you know, everybody's, uh, this was in 2021, everybody's uh, vaccine passports were a thing then. Everybody had to, you know, have masks and everything. And I can remember um, being in what I felt to be a very crowded hall. I had been in this hall many, many, many times. But for the first time, I started to realize how many people that hall actually holds. And is there any ventilation in this place? But I watched people for standing ovations. And it was remarkable because I watched people, they were on the edge of their seat, but they'd look around. Is anybody else going to do this? And then they'd sit back down. Or if they saw somebody else do it, then they'd stand up. And I thought, this is amazing. Like, you know, if you believe that the person deserves a standing ovation, then it doesn't matter what anybody else says, give them a standing ovation. If you don't mm. think they do, then don't like, you know, it's, it's, but it's not the way that most people mm. live their lives, you know, they're very dependent on others, and the way that they react to things in order to discern what choice they should make.
0: Mm. I think there's something really interesting in in what you're saying there that and and I'm going to I'm going to direct attention to a middle ground. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's and it's like this. I think sometimes it's really valuable to be the meerkat and detect the pattern and realize what the pattern's for. And it could be a cultural norm, like whether you're going to give a standing ovation or not. Uh, if you don't know the cultural norms in a, in a concert about when it's appropriate to to clap and when not you might not know the piece of work and think it's finished when in fact it hasn't you know and you can deeply embarrass yourself by suddenly standing up and clapping and everyone you know the 500 people are looking at you going who's that idiot like does he not know this piece so you know there's an advantage to that and and then there's a, then there's another there's another part and another there's a post on linkedin about 2 months ago and it was about a fire alarm in a hotel. And, and the response of, uh, I think, a particular um, room or the, the occupants of a room who said, we're not going. So the staff in the hotel had to respond to the fire alarm and they were evacuating everybody, right? And they and this one room, they just wouldn't answer. They put the people at risk. They put the staff at risk. Uh, they, were, they were rude. Uh, there were all sorts of... Uh, issues reported in this article in LinkedIn. And as it turned out, it was a false alarm, but the hotel still had to do its procedure. And of course, everybody, all the staff did a really fantastic job apart from having to deal with these idiots who just plain refused to get dressed and go out and, and, and follow the, the safety protocol. Now, I'm linking this in, right, because sometimes it's it really pays to not to not be a sheep and go with the flow and sometimes it really pays to to do that Uh, and sometimes if you don't if you don't pay attention to what's going on and follow those cultural norms there can be ramifications so it's not a it's not a yes or a no and and it's about us constantly evolving and learning so it's about us having that learning loop and saying well in this context what's the right response is it that the, the wisdom of the crowd is actually quite wise? Or is it that the wisdom of the crowd are off on a tangent doing something really dumb that I'm just not going to follow? So you've got to have a learning loop and you've got to use evidence to constantly train yourself to make better decisions where you can both have good pattern detection, follow the crowd when the crowd's on the money, and step back and let them go when they're about to go over a cliff because they're idiots. Um, so I, I, hope that's, <laughs> I hope that's wrapped up where you were going there. Yeah, I
1: I guess I I had a follow up question to this, um, because I've been curious about this for a long time now. So maybe you can actually help answer this is do we know why there's some people that um, look at a situation, see the sheep going the way the sheep are going and like, "Mm, no, sorry, I'm not going with the sheep. I'm going to go this direction because that makes more sense. Right. Compared to those who just kind of follow in a herd mentality, can you help understand why that is? What's the difference between the two types of thinking or people? Or
0: um, I, I can't answer a it is a simple why why question. I can. Uh, I'll, I'll provoke. I'll provoke my North American colleagues and, and friends over there. I think that there's a, a lot of training, a lot of pattern uh, entrainment in particularly in North America and Western, Western culture uh, to be sheep. Uh, I think we're training people like it's the 19th, you know, 19th century Industrial Revolution. We're training them to operate in a factory and be a cog uh, and, and, and be subservient and do as they're told. I, I think if you go to the education system, you look at some of the rote learning and the expectations that you're going to conform and comply with a, with a funnel of education. And, and in some cases li- we're literally trained to not think for ourselves when we're trying to, 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 regurgitate facts and follow a prescription uh, and people are trained to do it. I remember um, there was a, again, there's a popular news article and there was an interview with a woman in, in, in North America. And she was saying, um, uh, I, I think it was actually an anti-vax um, challenge, and and I think she'd been, you know, she she bought into a whole bunch of deep cult uh, beliefs and a, and, a, and a range of complete nonsense with 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 QAnon and anti-vax. She was also, she was across all these different different things, and and she she she'd had something horrendous happen where her, her close family members had died because they hadn't taken appropriate precautions, and she was she was regretting this, and she was saying how how deeply troubled she was and that she'd been taken along and she hadn't thought for herself. And then she'd looped back in uh, and said, you know, something like, you know, uh, like, I, I wish, I wish that God had told me the, the right answer here and told me which way to go. And, and there was this, this deep loop within loop within loop, expecting somebody to provide the answers for her without at any point stepping out and going, hang on a minute. I'm responsible for my choices here. Uh, and she was so, so deeply ingrained, she had no idea that she was in this pattern. Uh, so I, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I think there's something deeply troubling about what you've said. Uh, and I think it, it again goes very deep into education. Uh, Michael, I see your hand is up.
1: I, I, I just wanted to make a comment. And then, Michael, you hop in. The, the reason for us as health and safety professionals, I think this is very important to get our hands around, is because we say people have the right to refuse work. We say that, um, you know, why didn't anybody say that something was going on? we see um, situations in the news where people had known for a long time that something was up, but nobody stepped forward or saying anything. So mm. I do think that this is a critical piece to mm. breaking that in our profession. Michael, go ahead.
4: Yeah, I think kind of related to that, too, is... Um, and, and what triggered my hand to go up initially, because the, the, the chat evolved here a little, is the, the notion of um, how we lean on others to help us with our sense making. Right. So it's, there's, there's a big piece of personal resilience. And I love how you, you, you started this talk, Ian, about us taking responsibility when we are feeling stressed, we're feeling burnt out and stuff. Right. Like, because those are a lot, of, a lot of that, all the contributing factors are personal choices. Uh, but then your story, uh, the second story about how you were caught 300 meters under the Arctic and I share that because there's so many people who joined um, without air, right, and, and how you manage that you deeply had to not only trust but also signal your, your mate and, and, and if any of those sort of, if his or her sense making wasn't awareness wasn't peaked at the right time or their attention or their distance and stuff, it could have been a, a completely disastrous result um so I, I just wanted to kind of highlight that that, that this group sensing right mm-hmm. uh especially in critical teams and i'm sure you work with uh, do all sorts of interesting work in that um but back to your re, reason i wanted to ask back to your story is how did you get caught 300 meters without air uh the, um,
0: it was actually 100 meters but they oh sorry yeah uh,
4: 300 feet was in my mind <laughs> okay yeah yeah yeah
0: you good con- good conversion <laughs> the uh the it was a a system failure uh, on you. You essentially have a box with a number of uh, tanks, uh, and the way that they were plumbed together was incorrect. There was an error, uh, and I was only on one cylinder, and the rest weren't connected. And whilst everyone on the top side thought that I had unlimited air, uh, I didn't. Uh, wow. So it, it was it was a it was an error, essentially a human error, uh, but there were enough systems in operation. Uh, and we'd had enough training that it wasn't a fatal error.
4: Yeah. Um, well, what's, yeah. I mean, that, that's a, it's a beautiful example of a resilience um, because there was a system failure and, and, and such a dangerous environment, right. I'm sure there was multiple checks and balances and still with all of the procedural elements um, that resulted in a situation that could have cost a life. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And I think, You know, that's a good example. I'm just going into the safety space for a moment. Uh, If you're going to go into environments like scuba diving under ice in the Antarctic, uh, you cannot uh, mitigate the risk to zero. You just can't do it. There's just too many things that can go wrong. The systems are complicated, uh, but there's also complex uh, emergent factors. It could be wildlife. It could be a change in the ice. It could be... Just a simple thing like uh, an O-ring blows and suddenly you've got something happening. So you've got to have resilience. You've got to have redundancy within the system. uh, But you've got to have a a, a good culture where you can learn and and have the human interactions. There was no blame in this situation. There was no shouting. There was no carry on afterwards. It was just, hey, thanks, guys. It was great knowing that you were there for me. Uh, And these things happen. Right. Is there anything that we can do to modify our system and make sure this particular thing doesn't happen again? But you can't mitigate every other future risk. Uh, and, and, and just following up on something Tamara said, and I think this is really important, it's that ability to be able to share an incident or an event without ramifications so you can learn. And I think that's the biggest problem we have in safety at the moment is that the, that's, that that's psychological safety, that ability to share uh, something that has gone wrong to learn from it is not there in most places. Uh, I, I wrote an article, uh, check out my LinkedIn post of, of last week. Uh, we we published an article with the avalanche review uh, and we talk about stop stressing about stress. Uh, and we're applying, uh, you know, mix of resilience and Kinevin, uh into, uh, into that environment, which is extremely high risk environment. Uh, and then, You know, a few days later, an article came out by uh, Drew Hardesty, Uh, who's probably one of the world's leading avalanche professionals. And it was a really deeply reflective piece where he was essentially mentoring somebody from an adjacent, uh, you know, ski ski industry, avalanche control. Uh, And this person had gone out and had triggered and got caught in an avalanche. Uh, and they, were, they wanted to sort of share what had gone on as, as an opportunity to learn and to alert their company. And Drew said, you know, the, the environment is that, you know, if you do that, that's part of our contemporary way of thinking about safety. So we really encouraged this guy to share what had happened. The guy shared what had happened and got fired, right? And Drew was reflecting on this, right, deeply, deeply troubled that as a, as a mentor, as a global lead, he'd given this advice and the guy had lost his job. Right, and I think that, in a nutshell, hits the, hits the biggest problem with safety. Uh, you know, you don't have the right systems, you don't have the right uh, expectations of, of of risk. We're so risk-avoidant. It's like you broke the rules, we're going to fire you. Well, hang on, I can't learn anything here. Uh, it, that article's worth reading, uh, and 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 uh, yeah, I'll put that out there.
2: Uh,
0: I, I don't know if that's where you were heading.
2: Well, we're, we're hanging to the last 10 minutes of this conversation. I just want to turn back to the book. A lot of the stuff we talked about context, Ian does cover it in chapter six and context. And Michael Lettsbury also introduces the Knevin framework to kind of understand what domain you're in. And based on that, this is the sort of context specific response that you want to do. So I'll leave that as that. Like I said, devote um, a whole chapter. There's a one real piece that I do want to. Bring up on this show, and it talks about you talk about the Everest pattern. So oh, I yeah. thought this is a really cool thing um, because it's less learned that you has, that can have a real impact on safety. So can you say a few words about the Everest pattern?
0: Yeah, uh, interestingly, one of the one of the things that triggered my interest in 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 resilience, in decision-making and leadership was an experience I had way back in, um, in 2010. Uh, I was an executive in in government. I was in the Antarctic program and the, in, in Australia, there was a, a response to the global financial crisis. Uh, the government of the day put uh, billions of dollars into all sorts of programs. And one of those involved uh, roofing insulation, pink bats that go in, go in and, and keep, uh, keep homes warm, so they put uh, four billion dollars into this program, uh, but it, it wasn't well managed. Right, no one covered really covered off on the risk very well. Uh, four people died. There were over hundred house fires, uh, and it affected the department and the minister and all sorts of things. Now, I went to a, a, a conference called Risky Business, and in that conference, uh, they talked all about all sorts of things around governance and the keynote speaker was a, was an everest mountaineer called tim mccartney snape uh, no relative of mine but the guy the guy's amazing right he gave a fantastic keynote speech at an at a, at a a workshop called risky business now in his speech he showed loads of photos of just some of the most amazing ascents in the world and not once did he talk about risk and that really struck me here you have the best risk manager on the planet talking to an environment where people clearly don't know how to manage risk. And he doesn't mention risk and has no idea what he's doing to manage risk. And that's where we sort of discovered the unconscious processes that he uses to manage risk. And that's written up in the book. Uh, but that stimulated me to start thinking about how do we train people as if they're on Everest? Uh, and, and, and back to Everest, You know, on the 10th of May, uh, 1996, uh, eight people died right near the summit of Everest. They'd gone way past their point of no return. They hadn't uh, adjusted to change environment of, uh, of weather. Uh, they hadn't acknowledged that there were too many people crowding the summit bid. There were all sorts of factors that led to uh, a catastrophe on Everest with these people dying. They had sunk cost, right? They'd, they'd all invested $50,000, $100,000 months of their time. They told their friends they were going to do it. You know, there's peer pressure there was competition, there was fame and fortune, there's all sorts of these biases that led people way beyond where they should have gone into the death zone. So we designed a process that allows people to, to use that kind of sensing and say ahead of time, you know, what sort of signals, what kind of things will I see? How will, how will I use my sense-making to pre-position a signal that says, hey, stop right now, Now is your turn. now you need to turn back? And we can use embodied visualization. We can use our sensing. We can activate our unconscious signals by training them to go, uh-oh, hang on, stop right now. This is now my turnaround point. So this is a training activity, and it relates to, to what Tim McCartney Snape was just doing uh, with, without knowing what he did. He just did it brilliantly. So we've kind of unpacked that, and we've laid it out so, so all of us can learn from Everest, if you like.
2: Cool. Great okay well your your book is just chock full of real personal exercises i always like that end of a chapter there's something that you can do um and just put resilience into practice here Sorry, is there a couple of favorites that you've got because again you've got um 12 chapters and just a ton of stuff in there is there anyone you'd like to just mention to the mention to us
0: yeah i i live and breathe all of these things right um all, literally all the chapters are, are, are part of my everyday week, um, the way, way our family operate, the way that we go on holiday. You know, So much of it is part of my life. Uh, I, I really love embodied visualization, uh, sort of chapter four state where we can uh, pre-position, we can think about the future, we can do scenario testing, uh, and we can design uh, our responses uh, ahead of time. Uh, I use flow a lot, whether it's mountain biking or skiing or walking or, or whatever it might be to access flow. If I've got some, some tricky challenges, uh, you know, I might be thinking, I've got this problem, I'll go, I'll go sailing and come back. I'll know what the answers are, right? So, so there, and, and, and something we came in on, which was the box of chocolates, uh, where we were talking about this idea of, of you know, life, life is like a box of chocolates. Uh, you know, and, and I think I think that's if I had to capsulate everything there, it's about how do you how do you have your lifestyle designed the way you'd like it to be? And I and I think if I was to leave with leave the, the viewers with one thing, it's that it's really do take a moment. Life is so precious, right? Uh, you think about this less about oh, I've got to have a balanced lifestyle. You know, people talk about it like it's the scales between work and life. It's not. Think of it as a design process where you can get involved, you can be creative, take responsibility for the shape of your life, uh, for where you place your attention, uh, and if if you're placing attention in stuff that doesn't work for you, just stop doing it and go and do something else. You know, have a have a go, take responsibility, manage your downside risk, uh, integrate your signals, put it all together, and have a lifestyle by design.
2: And there's your takeaways for today, folks. <laughs> <laughs> right
1: there. We could continue on this conversation. But I think well, we need a part two.
2: Well, we could do a part two because I think Ian and I only covered about a third of the questions that mm-hmm. we had planned. <laughs> so, so I, And I really thank you for everybody's comments in there. It just added a, just a wealth of information and knowledge and really, really great to do that. So, Ian, we may have to have you back if you don't mind starting your day earlier. Yeah. yes?
0: Yeah, there were, there were four or five comments in the chat that uh, I thought I, sh- I-, I should respond to that. There's a good question about emotions there. You know, we should be more curious about emotions. Uh, I'll challenge something with that one day. Uh, that's a whole nother topic. Uh, but, that, you know, some good stuff there.
1: I'd like to dive into the difference between those health and safety professionals that are risk adverse and those health and safety professionals that do risk activities like mountain climbing and stuff like because I believe we may even do health and safety a little bit differently from one another. That could be an interesting conversation.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
2: Okay, well, again, um, thanks, everybody, for showing up there. And tomorrow, I'll turn it back over to you.
1: Yeah, no, thank you very much. Uh, on behalf of Safepedia, we appreciate, Ian, you coming and doing this. And, Gary, for you hosting every single month. We love it. And everybody in the audience, thank you again for joining in and making this possible. Because without you, we wouldn't be here. Thank <laughs> you.
0: Fun. Thanks to meet you thanks
1: all. Thanks,
0: everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: bye 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 bye